Coming to you from the studios of the Center for American Progress in Washington, D.C., I'm Lisa Sharon Harper, president of Freedom Road, a consulting group dedicated to shrinking the narrative gap. Welcome to the Freedom Road podcast. Each month, we bring together national faith leaders, advocates, and activists to have the kind of conversations we normally would have on the front lines. It's just that this time, we've got microphones in our faces, and you're listening in. And so this month, we are welcoming Philip Walgan, the Managing Director of Immigration Policy at the Center for American Progress. Welcome, Phil. Thank you for having me. We are so excited that you're with us. Excited to be here. Thank you. And then Jenny Yang is here from World Relief. She's the Vice President of Advocacy there. Thanks for coming, Jenny. It's so great to be with you and spend time with you guys. Uh, So, so excited for this conversation. And on the phone, we have the really, truly amazing and dear friend, Reverend Dr. Gabby. Salguero, president of National Latino Evangelical Coalition, and also a pastor. Gabe, what is the name of your church down in Florida? Uh, Calvario City Church in Orlando, Florida, and we are excited about this conversation and, and glad to listen in to so many colleagues and friends who've been doing it for so long. Thank you for being with us, friend. So this month we are talking immigration. So last fall, unprovoked by anything other than his own whim, our president decided to set an end date for DACA, the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals Program, the program set up by President Obama. And this episode will drop on March 1st or a little bit before it. And the end date is set by the president is March 5th. And that's just a few days after So over the course of the last two months, we've seen the government shut down over DACA. We've seen Nancy Pelosi throw that Hail Mary pass a few weeks ago, reading the testimonies of DACA participants on the floor for eight hours. Hello, somebody. And we saw the Senate fail to pass an immigration bill just yesterday. So I want to start our conversation with the facts. So, Phil, I'm turning to you as our resident expert in the policy, although honestly, kind of everybody here is really working the policy stuff. But, Phil, this is your job. Tell us, what is the story here? Where are we at and how did we get here? Yeah, I mean, I think this is a great question. And, you know, it just makes me think of how far back we can go on these immigration debates. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think just globally, you know, we have – This immigration issue, we don't pass legislation in Congress probably on immigration more than every 30 years. So we've had this pent up need to do something on immigration. I think much more to bring it to the present, right? Since the Trump administration took office, they've really been at war with immigrants and immigrant communities. And the ending of DACA, as you talk about in September, was one of, I think, the most salient parts of this war. Mm. Although we can talk about the Muslim bans and get into that as well. It's interesting that you call it war. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think it's been multi-pronged. I think they've been very clear that they want to criminalize immigrants, call them basically, you know, as Trump started from his campaign, rapists and drug runners, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And it's been multifaceted. I mean, I do think it's a war. But Trump ended DACA in September. That left the nearly 800,000 people who had gotten this status, which allowed them to work legally, you know, help their families, help their communities, just do really amazing things, you know, it threw them into limbo. And so what we've had since then is a 
debate in Congress about how do we actually protect these young people? How do we pass some kind of protection, some way to legalize this population? And we've seen bipartisan majorities on both sides say we want to do something. And as you say, just yesterday, that really fell apart in large part because of the opposition from President Trump. So talk about that. What is the opposition from President Trump that they're responding to? So I think we've seen two things. I mean, one, there is a faction in Congress that I'm sure we're going to unpack during our time that just absolutely opposes anything positive on immigration. There is a Mm -hmm. hardcore faction that wants to see immigrants deported from the country and wants to see no new immigrants or refugees come into the country. So that's part of it. Mm -hmm. But what we've also seen as part of this overall war on immigrants is that the Trump administration has been proposing really radical shifts in immigration law. So while bipartisan groups in Congress are saying what we need to do now is protect dreamers. These are young people. This is what we're focused on. Mm -hmm. The Trump administration continues to say what we want to do if you want to protect dreamers is ramp up border enforcement, ramp up interior enforcement, which means tearing families apart, deportations, detentions. And it means basically slashing future immigration, in particular, taking away the ability of families to reunite, to come to this country and stay with their relatives. Mm. What are the roots of this in our nation? Like, because this is, did it just come out of the blue or did it, do we have a a history of this? How did this happen? Like, Uh, really, how did it happen? Yeah, now you're speaking my language. Um, So as a a historian (laughs) by training, I mean, I I would say the U.S., since our very founding days, has had both, I think, twin pillars of freedom and nativism baked into it. So, I mean, right after the Constitution was ratified in the 1790s, we've got, you know, the Alien and Sedition Acts going after French immigrants. You can fast forward to the 19th century, anti-Irish, anti-Chinese, anti-Asian immigrants, Mm -hmm. the 20th century. So we've always had a trend or at least a a minority that has pushed back on immigration, that has tried to close the doors to immigrants. And I think what we've seen on the flip side has been a real culture and identification of this nation as a nation of immigrants. So Mm -hmm. we're seeing a push and pull of the two of those. And I think that's really played out over the last couple of decades. So if we think about the unauthorized population, right, we passed law in 1986, which legalized about 3 million people, legalized most of the people that were here without status. And yet we did nothing to actually solve the underlying factors. And so since the 1980s, the unauthorized population has crept back up and crept back up and Congress has failed to do anything, Mm -hmm. peaked around 2007. And you saw in 2007 an attempt to pass immigration reform. Right. Uh, And even though that's gone down, we still haven't gotten anywhere. So Congress failed again in 2013 and 2014 to pass immigration reform. Mm -hmm. And here we are again trying to protect dreamers, these young people who came here at a young age, right, who don't have status, who know no other country. And we have Congress again, I think, really failing to come together and pass reform. So what are the implications here? And Gabrielle, I'm also going to bring you in here as well. But Phil, what's the economic cost on our nation? Let's start with the money, right? Like what's the economic cost or the cost in terms of our solvency as a nation if we don't pass DACA, if we don't pass immigration reform? And then the flip side of that, what could we gain if we do? I think there are three things here. So one is that immigrants are already here and contributing significantly. Mm -hmm. They contribute on the local level. If you think of the fact that immigrants are in communities all across the country, they're spending money. A lot of them actually run, you know, the mom and pop shops, the corner store, the restaurants, that sort of thing, really keeping local economies going. They contribute significant amounts of tax revenue. We're talking about over $11 billion in state and local taxes each year. And they contribute significantly at the federal level. They help 
help keep the Social Security uh, and Medicaid systems solvent. Wait, wait can I just – I'm sorry. <laughs> Let me just – I need to stop for a minute on $11 billion. Yeah, like, let's that's just, a lot of money. That's a lot of, a lot of money. money. Wait, yep. can I just say really quickly that $11 billion, isn't that close to the amount that Trump wants for the wall? Yeah, although his numbers keep fluctuating, but Hello, yeah, no, you could, right? you could, you could. He probably... wants to kick yep, eleven yep. billion dollars out of the country mm-hmm. and ask for eleven billion dollars to build a wall to keep them out. Yep, is that not economically stupid? Yeah, so much of this, right? That's and truly, I can. I mean, look, I'm not good with numbers. <laughs> I'm really not. I'm not a numbers person, but I understand that. Yeah. Wow. Absolutely. And and honestly, the people that are going to be the most affected are going to be these people in towns and cities all across the country who are going to see, you know, all of a sudden, if, if you got rid of these immigrants, if you kick them out, if you kick out DACA recipients, they're going to see their workers go away. If you're a small business owner and you lose one of your employees that you've trained, I mean, that is that's a catastrophe, wow. right? Yeah. If you lose that like mom and pop, that restaurant that's the center of your community's culture, that doesn't rebuild. And we've seen stories about, you know, people realizing that the local owner owner of a restaurant who got deported, you know, they were undocumented and the pillar of their community. We've seen that again and again under the Trump administration. So we think this would have a really devastating consequence if we don't do something for DACA, if we don't pass some sort of reform. Wow. And Gabe, what's the impact on churches? Like what would the impact of not passing DACA or comprehensive immigration reform be on your church? Well, look, I I think it would be catastrophic Mm -hmm. and devastating. There are close to 6 million Hispanic evangelicals living in the United States, and many of them are, if they're not undocumented themselves, are connected or related to them. Some of them are leaders. I was ju- I did an interview with a DACA recipient who's a missionary to a college campus for, for Chi Alpha. And so it would wow. not just devastate that kind of the laity, but the impact on the leadership and the future of the Latino church, be it Catholic or evangelical or mainland Protestant, we would take decades to recover. And so it's very important to us because there would be families separated. Could you imagine a mom yeah. being deported? People forget that a lot of these dreamers already have children of their own. You know? Oh, my goodness. Uh, yeah. So when you think dreamers, some of them are in their 30s and That's or right. late 20s and, and, and working and raising children and, and our Sunday school teachers or our deacons in our church or, or even pastors. And so they're serving. I'm, I'm thinking right now of Ingrid. This is her real name. She's a dreamer. She's a leader in the church. She works in a hospital taking care of people. And she has two sons who are U.S. born. And she went through the process just like she was asked to do. We helped her fill out her DACA application. She received it. And now she's in limbo. And multiply that, you know, 800,000 times. And you'll look at the at the level of, of kind of, uh, it will be an exodus on the level of the book of Exodus you know, since, wow. since the time of Moses. And so this this, wow. this would be really, really devastating for our churches. Wow. Yeah, Lisa, if I could comment, too, yeah, because please. at World Relief, we actually have several of our staff members who are DACA recipients, and they obviously have been on the front lines of sharing their stories. And I was communicating with a few of them over the past week, and there's just this sense of a real fear um, that if Congress doesn't act soon and act immediately, that they're going to lose status and they're going to basically lose their jobs working at World Relief. And a lot of the work that they were doing wow. was happy, was actually helping other immigrants and immigrant legal services and helping refugees that are here as well. And so I think I mean, the, the need and the urgency cannot be overstated. I think there is 
ongoing and a need to politically resolve this situation. And, and the fact that most Americans, the majority of Americans believe that there needs to be a legislative solution just means that right now we're just having a political problem and political yes. incapacity and ineptitude really what is what you're seeing from Congress right now. And I think that's what's been so frustrating about this. So Jenny, I'm so, so first of all, I'm glad you jumped in because I have a question for you. Now bear with me because it's a little bit of a long on-ramp to the question. But you recently convened a major press conference that had a broad spectrum of evangelical leaders calling for comprehensive immigration reform. I mean, it was really, it was actually amazing to watch. I mean, everybody from the Southern Baptist Convention to the National Evangelical Association to everybody in between, World Relief and others. And evangelicals, white evangelicals in particular, are Trump's most loyal base. Yet even in light of evangelical leader support, he is still calling for a multi-billion dollar wall and hundreds of thousands of refugees to be kicked out of the country and the kind of policies that get in the way of Senate passing a bill. So, Jenny, why? <laughs> I mean, asking the same question. I, you know, I think I think I'm, I'm today, especially I'm I'm really frustrated because I feel like we did everything that we could have. I mean, we yeah. did everything almost, you know, right in terms of bringing the voices to the table. I mean, the dreamers kind of pushing this, really leading us in this fight as well, and feeling like we. I don't know what else more we could have done to really change this conversation. And that's why I think right now it's it's really frustrating. I mean, when we, Gabe signed on to this letter and, and others as well, but when we released the letter, we had a hundred of the most influential, kind of respected evangelical leaders signed on who normally don't speak out on, on political or policy issues. Yeah. And then once we released a letter, we had 3,000 church leaders from across the country, from every state. And it's not easy to find Folks, we had a hard time finding church leaders in Vermont and in Wyoming and some other places. But after a few days, they were able to sign on. And so when we released it, we said church leaders from every state signed on. And so we thought this was going to be kind of a key difference and an impact-making letter. And it did because we released that letter with Senator Langford, who's a Republican from Oklahoma, and Senator Angus King, an independent from Maine, to kind of show this bipartisanship to say that, hey, there's a common sense middle-of-the-ground approach here in which a lot of these evangelical leaders are calling for. Mm-hmm. And I think the challenge was really in the past week when we saw these amendments coming up on the Senate and the Senate really being forced into a position where they had to talk about where they actually were. I think the White House kind of making statements around specific bills wasn't helpful because mm-hmm. a lot of what they were saying was either not factual or it kind of put certain senators in certain corners in which they couldn't get out of. And, but I think it, what it really evidenced to me as well is that I think we have a continuing need, at least within the church and our response to these issues, to really pick up the phone and make calls and, and make our voices heard because that letter was a demonstration, I think, of a convergence of evangelical thought and opinion on the issue of, of immigration in our country yeah. to say that this is a distinctive voice that is speaking into these issues. But a lot of offices I talked to said, well, we didn't you know, get as many calls or I mean, when it comes to these nuances of policy, sometimes they just are backed into political corners in which they just end up aligning within their own political party, even though they seem more nuanced before. Um, and so it is really frustrating because I think, again, I feel like, you know, we did everything that we could have done and the chips just kind of fell where they, they are. Um, and so, I mean, even now, I think we're trying to see whether or not the Senate can 
pick up the pieces and and really try to get something done before March 5th. But now we have a clear idea of where the senators are. And, And what's interesting about the conversation, not only do we know where the senators are, but I think the biggest issue right now, and, you know, I love to hear Phil and Gabe and Lisa, what you think about this is, you know, the the challenge and the campaign rhetoric has always been the idea of of illegal immigration, right? Is, okay, we need to, you know, that's kind of the controversy. But actually what I think right now, the main issue is is legal immigration. It's actually, what is our country going to do to admit future categories of immigrants? And that's actually what crumbled the Senate negotiations because the senators couldn't agree on future limits and numbers of future legal immigration. So that, I think, is going to be the major sticking point moving forward. So I want to ask, so what do you think? I mean, if if he's not playing to a base of evangelicals, who is he playing to? And I think that actually what you just said, it it begins to get at that question because you're, you're no longer talking about undocumented immigration. Now you're talking about legal. What's going on here? Well, I think there are hardliners in the White House right now. Stephen Miller is someone who used to work for Senator Sessions when he was a senator from Alabama. And even as a Hill staffer, before he got to the White House, he was a hardline anti-immigrant or immigration restrictionist. And now he's bringing those views into the White House. Mm -hmm. I think Trump himself is a little bit more nuanced. I think he's not as restrictionist, I think, as some of his advisors are. But because his advisors are really driving this forward, you can kind of see their fingerprints all over the framework. And so I think Trump is, I mean, when you saw the bipartisan meeting he had earlier in 2018, he was pretty, you know, seemingly welcoming of most ideas. And he said, well, I will sign things, just get it to my desk. And then the future uh, statements you saw from the White House were really more restrictionist with significant cuts to future legal immigration, which really wasn't a discussion point. And so you, again, see kind of the certain advisors, I think, in the White House really driving this conversation. Yeah. And and just to pick up on that, I mean, I think that's exactly right. And poll after poll, when you poll people and you ask them, what should future immigration look like? People are all over the place. People don't really know. But the largest majority is always we shouldn't be cutting immigration. And, you know, for years, we should not be cutting, right? Mm -hmm. There's about a third say, well, maybe we should increase a little less than that. Maybe we should decrease. The vast majority of people basically say, keep it the same. Don't, we should not be cutting immigration. And and you get, you know, you get into the policy and you say, look, the people we'd be cutting are our family members in particular. And then people say, well, I don't, I don't think so. You know, I would want to bring my parents or my kids or my spouse, right? right? That's not something that we should, we should keep out. The Republican Party for years always said, even when we're having this debate over undocumented immigration, like Jenny said, always said, you know, we're the party that's for legal immigration. And so the fact that we're having this discussion, I think, just shows how far out of that mainstream the current debate is. And I think Jenny's absolutely right that a lot of this is being pulled to the right by uh, certain advisors in the White House that have captured immigration policy. I think you're right on it. This conversation has devolved over the last decade. Yeah. Ten years ago, we weren't even talking about limiting legal immigration. Right? And, we, and, and overwhelmingly, ten years ago, even today, people were for legalizing dreamers, children who arrived here through no fault of their own. And, and I think that the fundamental question, look, I'm a pastor. The National Latino Evangelical Coalition represents 3,000 Hispanic evangelical pastors. And what we're asking ourselves is, hey, what kind of country do we want to be? And how does, how does our immigration policy reflect our highest values, right? I remember when 
former President Obama announced the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. Yeah. I traveled with President Obama on Air Force One to Las Vegas to meet with parents and children. I was there when he spoke at that school in Nevada, and I remember like it was today. I remember like it was today. A mom and a daughter hugging and crying and saying, we can stay together. We can stay together. If we are saying, hey, we're for family values, we're for family unification, I don't understand how we've, over the last five, six, seven years, decade, have devolved from keeping families together to leveraging dreamers against family unification. I say that as a pastor. I say that as a father. I say that as a person who's spoken to speakers of the House, both when Republicans were in the majority and Democrats were in the majority. It, to me, makes no sense. There's a lack of political will and courage. I went with a bunch of our pastors. We traveled with Congressman Luis Gutierrez, and we signed up some of these dreamers in our churches. I went to Houston, Texas. Mm. I went to Tampa, Florida. We went to Orlando. We went to North Carolina. We went to Elizabeth, New Jersey. We did one in, in New York. I personally sat with these kids, and they said, finally, I can study. I can serve in the military. I can come out of the shadows. Wow. We, we at NALIC were one of the few evangelical organizations that filed an amicus brief in favor of the DACA position. Mm -hmm. And so as a pastor, I have to go back home, and our pastor have to go back home. And we told these kids, now young adults or adults, and, and now they have children, U.S.-born children, hey, we're sorry we asked you to have the courage to step out in the courage. And somebody eliminated DACA. This is what I don't understand. How do you eliminate DACA without having the alternative already in hand? And so you're, there's a political willingness to play with the lives of people and limbo. And for me, it's morally outrageous. Everybody wants to do it. There's agreement, broad agreement about both security and dreamers. Let's get it done. You're listening to the Freedom Road Podcast, where we bring you candid conversations from the front lines of the struggle for justice. May 13 through 19, 2008, there is something happening that you will not want to miss. Freedom Road is contracted with Greenville University to craft this one-week pilgrimage-based intensive course in justice ministry. I mean, check it, guys. We're going to be starting at EJI, which is the Equal Justice Initiative, on May 13th. Going to be there the 14th and 15th. Then traveling to Mississippi, where we will walk the land where Emmett Till spent the last day of his life. And and also standing on the land where Fannie Lou Hamer was first recruited into the mass movement that we now call the Civil Rights Movement. From there, we'll move to Memphis, Tennessee, where we'll learn more about the garbage worker strike that brought Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. to Memphis in 1968. And we'll also stand in front of the Lorraine Motel where he was shot down. From there, we will move to St. Louis, Missouri, where we'll talk with leaders from the Ferguson Commission. And we'll commemorate the passing of Michael Brown, who was shot down on the streets of Ferguson. Don't miss this. 
This is an opportunity for pastors and faith leaders and advocates and anyone who wants to grow deeper in their understanding of the policies of yesteryear that got us to the policies of today. And how do they intersect with what we call the good news of Jesus Christ? Justice Ministry, the Gospel, and the Politics of Race. For more information, go to our Facebook page at freedomroad.us. In the early 1990s, I worked at a youth center in the heart of Los Angeles. I I mentored a young woman named Maria, and she was brilliant. Her school had no books, literally, but she was brilliant. And one day, Maria shared a dream with me. She said, I have this idea. What if we were to start a bank here at the youth center and folks could save points that they gained from doing their homework and extra credit, and they could spend their points at the store that they would also create. And we, the young people, will will run it all. I was like, that's like a flash of genius, literally. And we did it. So we, you know, we set our mind about trying to make Maria's dream come true, really. And once Maria confided in me, that her father had smuggled her into the country when she was a baby. And I didn't understand the implications of what she was sharing with me until California's Proposition 187 passed in 1984. I was in grad school. I remembered walking across the campus of USC that day and tears were flowing down my face. All I could think of was the terror of Maria's eyes as she was picked up on the street by ice, torn from her family and from us, her church, and placed in the back of a police wagon. This was in my imagination. This is what I could imagine. And then she would be taken to Mexico and dumped like trash on the other side of the border. And on that day, immigration became real to me. It was no longer just an issue. It was Maria and Julio and Jose and Liliana and Mercedes and John. And it was the young people that I loved. So I want to know, how about you guys? What was your first interaction with this immigration reform issue or movement. How did you enter the movement? I guess I came about it slightly roundabout, but I grew up in uh, an Orthodox Jewish community in the incredibly diverse community of Elizabeth, New Jersey, where everyone had immigrant roots of some sort, whether it was Colombian, whether it was Italian, Cuban, Portuguese, or my own family kind of mix of Russian Jewry. And, you know, even though my own family came to the U.S. uh, in the turn of the 20th century, every story was about the old country, was about the immigrant experience. That was just so steeped in who we are and who we were as a people. So if you mix that with growing up in the Jewish tradition of tikkun olam, of repairing the world, that really got me interested in immigration. I came into it more through the academic side of things. I got a PhD in American history at Berkeley studying the Immigration and Nationality Act of 1965, which is the foundational law that created the system that we have today. And Mm -hmm. 
what I realized as I was in grad school, especially in Berkeley, you know, so many of the debates we're having now were echoed back then, right? How do you move from racial exclusion to a more open and diverse society? How do you think about family reunification and family policy going beyond just thinking about immigrants as economic contributors? How do you create a refugee policy that protects those fleeing need? And so I really got the bug to start Looking at this through a more modern lens, came to D.C., got involved in the advocacy community, got involved in the fight to protect the 11 million people here without legal status, the millions of refugees and asylees that are just looking for protection. And, you know, I've been in the movement ever since. Wow. Thanks, Phil. How about you, Jenny? I... I mean, I'm the daughter of immigrants. And so when I mm-hmm. think about immigration, it's it's personal to me because I think so much of the narrative in our country today is, is somewhat negative, I think, especially when that narrative comes from our elected officials. So when someone starts talking negatively about an immigrant community, I take it personally because I realize – that's not the story of, of my family. That's not who my parents are. You know, these are my parents came here and and had limited money, had limited English skills, but they started their own business. They contributed back to their communities. I mean, this is the Amer- immigrant story, right? I mean, this is what has made America great. And so I think the whole narrative around immigration, I think, is, is really fascinating. And so I studied abroad, actually, in college, and I remember having this experience where I was in Spain and there was this young mother and her child. um, They're from Africa and they had, uh, they were riding the subway and there was a young Spanish teenager that came on and started graffitiing on the walls, get out of my country, black people. And it just bothered me so much. And so that summer I just volunteered at a local organization called Oceros Racismo that combats racism in Spain. And then I also started studying asylum policy and and started to figure out what does it look like for a woman like this to gain asylum in Spain and gain some kind of legal status. And I really think from that experience, I realized when you talk about changing things for the vulnerable, it requires changing systems and structure, but it also requires changing hearts and minds. You need both of those together. And even for this woman, it wasn't just her getting legal status in Spain. It was about her feeling like she was even welcomed there by the local community. And so when I started working at World Relief, I did a lot on refugee issues. But then when I started learning more about domestic U.S. immigration policy and just the narrative around and the debate around how we should reform our laws and how broken our system actually was, is when it became a personal passion of mine. And Hmm. at the same time, I also realized at that time that it was oftentimes the church and the specifically the the evangelical church, more specifically the white evangelical church that was considered the most anti-immigrant. And that's when Mm. I became more moved in my spirit to challenge the church to have a deeper biblical understanding of what it means to welcome the stranger. And really at a time when I wanted to distance myself from my own immigrant story, because I felt like people were going to discount what I was going to be saying because they were going to say, well, you're only saying this because it's personal. Like you must have immigration issues in your family. I remember going to Calvin College and speaking. And after I spoke, I was addressing a group of mostly retired older people from Grand Rapids. Mm-hmm. And I just was not connecting with them. And then one of the ladies said, well, why do you care about this? Like, tell me your own personal story. And I shared about my father and our immigrant struggles. And the whole room changed. And ever since then, the woman who had asked me to come speak said, you should totally talk more about your family because it connects you with the audience. They feel like you have something behind what you're saying. And so ever since then, I started speaking more about my personal story, knowing it's not discounting me from the conversation. It's actually empowering my voice 
to make it a personal conversation. And so I really started connecting those two things together. It wasn't just a policy issue. It was a personal issue for me. And I've been in it ever since. And you wrote a really great book, too. Yes. Called? Called Welcoming the Stranger, uh, Justice, Compassion, and Truth in the Immigration Debate. It actually came out in 2009. Mm -hmm. We, Matthew and I, rewrote it actually just recently. And so it's Mm -hmm. a new edition coming out in June of this year. Oh, very good. Yeah. Wow. A lot of it's changed. So, (laughs) Oh, really? Yes. There's there's new content. There's new chapters. I mean, we were writing about Barack Obama and John McCain back in 2009 and now. After, you know, of several administrations, oh uh, a lot has changed. Mm-hmm. How about you, Gabriel? I grew up in a town called Lakewood, New Jersey. Very mm. diverse, uh, Orthodox Jewish, Latino, African-American, white, e- everything. And so I grew up with diversity. Mm-hmm. But my father and mother are pastors. They've been pastors since the late 70s, early 80s. And so we had a, a an immigrant community that our churches serve through English classes and integration services. And so I grew up with immigrants being my brother and my sister or my Sunday school teacher or mm-hmm. my, and so they were family. And mm-hmm. and so I came at it kind of, it was in the air that I breathed. It was the America I knew. <laughs> America is diverse. America is welcoming. And, and so that, that was part of kind of my church culture and the church DNA. We were always that way. We were a bilingual church. We spoke Spanish. We spoke English. We had Cubans and Haitians. Mm. And I, it, was, it was beautiful. It was what I always thought. It was not till later, you know, when I went to seminary and other places that I discovered the policy debates. And so my initial approach was neighbors and, and fellow church members at the church I grew up in. Later on, as, as Malik and our churches became involved, we noticed how much policy was making it difficult for these people to stay in our churches and stay in our schools. And we began to discover, oh, this is why this person's not here anymore. They were detained and deported. Or this is why this person is afraid to drive. Or, yeah. and, and so I didn't become aware of the policy till I was a, a young adult. But really, my encounter with immigrant and refugee communities came through the gospel, came through being a pastor and the mm-hmm. son of pastors. My mom and dad were, were pastors, and this is what we did every day. We didn't think about policy. We didn't think, we thought of it, this is what Jesus has called us to do, to serve our neighbor, our mm-hmm. immigrant neighbor, our refugee neighbor. And not till later did we discover it. there are policies that make this commandment of love your neighbor more difficult than it should be. You know, it's funny because, I mean, this, this whole call to love your neighbor, it's I, I, just yesterday, I was at the Civil Rights Museum down in Memphis. I was at the Samuel DeWitt Proctor Conference, which is a fabulous conference for the black church in particular. So we were at the National Civil Rights Museum in Memphis, which is also the very place where Dr. MLK was assassinated 50 years ago in about a month. I believe April 4th is is the day. And so what I was really struck by when I was there, because it's interesting, the reason why I kind of feel, I kind of shot up, I sat up straight when you said the word war, because that was the number one thing that I really was impressed by when I was at that museum is these people, they were aware that they were in a war. And the thing is, it was violent. There was violence coming against them that they were absorbing into their bodies every time they had to go out on the street. Every choice to go on the street was a choice to absorb violence, a choice to engage. I don't think we really understand that now, but it feels like we are in that kind of a push and pull, but folks are kind of thinking of it as like a policy debate as opposed to an actual 
war of ideas that is impacting actual people. And it's it's striking. The reason why I bring that up is because you also mentioned, Phil, the 1965 Immigration Act, which came as a result of the big push in the civil rights movement. So there's something to do with race here. And I want to talk about that. Can we talk about the intersection between race, the constructs of race, racial hierarchy, white supremacy, and immigration policy in the U.S.? Yes, we're going there. Go. <laughs> anybody. Right. Yes. Anybody. So I'm glad we're like talking about two, this. Two, three days to do this. You know, maybe maybe eight hours or Let's so. Let's do it. Um, yeah. I mean, <laughs> look, there, there's, yeah, <laughs> there's clearly a lot to say about here. I mean, to me, yeah. again, as a historian, where I keep coming back to as I look at the policies that the Trump administration has put forward, particularly the ones that we're debating now, cutting legal immigration, some of the work that we've done here at the Center for American Progress has looked at what would actually happen if these policies went into effect. And what we find is that they would significantly restrict the ability of black, Latino, and Asian immigrants to come into the country. To me, that has echoes of that time before 1965 when we explicitly yeah. kept we explicitly admitted immigrants based on race and national origin. Mm. And there is this sense that we're trying or that the, the policymakers in the Trump administration are trying to move us backwards there. And you can see that beyond just this policy, which is coming up in the Dreamer context. You can certainly see that in terms of numerous Muslim and refugee bans to keep out people of faith and a very specific faith. I think this is part of a general war and, and attack on communities of color. And we're seeing that from Charlottesville on out. So I'm not surprised that we're having this immigration debate in the context of an administration that has, I think, been particularly hostile. That's awesome. Thank you. Jenny. Yeah, I think race is interplayed into every single social issue that the United States of America deals with. Yeah. And it is a huge significant factor in the the current policy debates around immigration. But people don't point to race as a contributing factor. They just overlay the issue of race with national security or with economic reasons, when in fact, a lot of those are formed, the policies are formed through racial preferences or biases, for example. And so every iteration of a significant immigration bill that we had in our country from the founding of our country till now had some sort of racial dynamic to it. And I think that's the current case today. Can you explain that? Like, break that down. When you say that, what are you thinking of? What's in your mind? Like, for example. Yeah. So, I mean, I think about the the Chinese Exclusion Act that passed in the late 1800s, 1880s. Mm -hmm. And that was a specific act that excluded people from China, um, either from immigrating in the future or even naturalizing once they got here. And that act was in place for 60 years or so before Chinese and other Asian immigrants can actually continue to come into the United States of America. The 19, I mean, you felt, you, you know the history yeah. better than me, but um, <laughs> it's like, he's, yeah. he's like ready to go. But, but in the 1920s, there, yeah. I mean, they, they basically preferred immigrants from Western Europe to immigrate to the United States. And at that time they used census data from the late 1800s to, to create these quotas because if they had used the census data from the 1920s, it would have been more diverse. So they said, well, let's go back to the time when the U.S. was less diverse and use our demographics then to basically consider how many immigrants we should have in the future. Um, And so, yes, our entire immigration kind of system was based on racial preference until, you know, 1965, when we were having a civil rights debate in our country, realizing, well, we can't exclude people based on the color of their skin in our country. So why in our immigration laws are we having these same racial preferences? 
And that's what led to the change, which is the current basis of our immigration system, which is we're not going to be basing it on our race. We're going to be basing it on your skills and whether or not you have family here, two basic pillars of our current immigration system. And so right now, I think when we are talking about, well, what does it look like for future immigration? Obviously, we want people to come into the United States who have certain skills. At the same time, I don't think family-based immigration is an avenue that we should cut because a lot of the people that are coming here based on family also have jobs. I mean, they're they're not here not working. They're working as well. So I think the other thing, too, to realize is these executive orders that the president issued over 2017 had a really significant impact on the refugees that were coming to the U.S. We saw an 80 percent decline in Muslim refugees coming mm. in, a 60 percent decline in Christian refugees coming in. And so, again, I think that the guys for these executive orders is, oh, it's for national security interests. But there was no basis in that argument because the program wasn't, in, the refugee program wasn't insecure. And so you see this kind of, st- the rescinding of DACA, the elimination of temporary protective status for Salvadorans and Haitians. I mean, it is a war because it's relentless. It is this constant attack on people of color in our country rooted in immigration policies that are based on national security arguments or economic arguments. And I mean, that's been the conversation in the history of the United States. And I just think sometimes in the current day, we think we're removed from that or we think we're better than that, that we don't make these racial decisions when, in fact, that's exactly what we're doing right now. Yeah. And just to piggyback off of that, I mean, in the 1980s, this is not even that many years ago, the 1980s. The immigration officials kept out Haitian immigrants in particular because they thought they would bring AIDS into the country. And what you've heard from the president, even before his more famous asshole comments about Haitians, wow. you know, in the fall, he made a comment about Haitians and AIDS as a reason not to bring them in. So we have these echoes, even after fixing our laws in the 1960s, making them more egalitarian. You know, progress is always bumpy. Progress is not just linearly up. And we're still having these same debates. I just I, I, I yeah, think that. I think that this is very important, mm-hmm. kind of what is our understanding of racialized overtones when it comes to immigration and refugees mm-hmm. and even legal immigration, the coral systems, et cetera. You know, why, if you come from a certain country and you step foot in Florida, you get instant asylum. That's right. But if, if, you, if you're from Haiti, you don't. That's so right. The, the, the why question is an important one as, as a as a pastor, as, as, as a person who serves this community, mm-hmm. why people who have overcome severe natural disasters or, or real violence in their country, why are TPS revoked for Haitians and, and Salvadorians? I passed in our coalition in, in, in Maryland. 90% of his church is Salvadorian, and his wife is from El Salvador, and she has a relative who, was, who returned to El Salvador and was murdered. And so... What, wow. what is it about? What is it about our understanding of race? You know, for there's a the word for hospitality in the New Testament is xenophilia, which literally means love of stranger. You know, you have to love the stranger as you love yourself, and and so the question about racialized understandings of who can come, what they contribute to society, even in, as, as Jenny said, in family unification, most of the people who come here. Family unification are working, are contributing. Think about all the Fortune 500 and the tech companies. They're the children or, or grandchildren. That of is exactly and right. And created a whole new technology. They may not, their parents may not have come here. Think of, of how many senators and congressmen and women, their parents and great grandparents 
who were not part of STEM, but their children and grandchildren are now in the U.S. Senate or in the U.S. House of Representatives. And so this understanding for me, we were all created in the image of God, all of us, whether you're Muslim, Jewish, Christian, agnostic, atheist, we all have a shared human dignity. And so if we're going to talk about immigration and ignore the kind of racialized terms, I was reading Samuel Huntington's, you know, Clash of Civilizations. Mm-hmm. It's like a word. But he wrote another book called Who Are We? about the danger of Hispanics coming to the United States. It's a really kind of fear-based understanding of people from around the world. I think we need to have a more realistic, pragmatic approach to immigration rather than a kind of fear-based or racialized understanding of immigration. I think that that's actually literally the conversation we need to have as a country. We need to ask the question, who are we? Who are we? Because when I think back even to the the Immigration Act of 1790, the Immigration Act of 1790, the very first Immigration Act, declared that we, the we, is white men of good character. That's who the we was back then. In the very first Immigration Act, the only ones who would be able to be able to become naturalized citizens were white men of good character. And they were actually, I believe, answering the call of Ben Franklin, who argued to the crown before we became the United States of America that the U.S. should be or this land should be preserved as a land to preserve the white race because he was afraid all the other races are starting to outnumber us. And so we should use this land in order to preserve us. And so I really, I think everything everybody said here is exactly right. There has been a war, a war for the soul of America. And right at the heart of that war is this question of immigration. Who are we? Are we a white nation? Is the U.S. fundamentally, as Ben Franklin argued that it should be, is it actually a white nation or is the U.S. a nation that actually is about the beloved community or could be about the beloved community? Who are we? Bringing freedom to your ears from coast to coast and around the globe, this is the Freedom Road Podcast. March 5th, more than 11 million images of God, including 1.8 million young people, might be under threat of deportation. We don't know yet. And earlier in this broadcast, Jenny, you hinted that there might be ways for DACA to pass before March 5th. So I want to get there. I actually, last night, I kind of just sat and I reflected on what could immigrant young people be thinking right now? What could immigrant families be struggling with right now? Gabrielle, you mentioned this also earlier. I try to imagine the terror of that. How do these young people continue to dream? I mean, if DACA does not pass, this is reality, right? They won't be able to stay in state schools. They won't be able to have health insurance. They won't be able to continue to work because they won't be able to have working papers or they'll have to go underground and become exploited then. And, you know, in my deepest moments, I try to imagine what it would feel like to be deported myself, right? Like, imagine that. Imagine waking up one day and thinking it will be a day like any other day. I go to work or school 
or to the grocery store. I get stopped by a cop because I didn't come to a full stop at a stop sign. Hello, somebody. I lived in California for 14 years. I know about the California stop, right? Yes. That's that's where you don't fully stop, right? And the next thing you know, I'm in jail, and then I'm on a plane, and then I'm in a country I've never known. There's no opportunity to say goodbye to my mom or my dad or my auntie or my brothers or my daughter. There's no last hugs. I don't even get the chance to make my bed. I try to imagine it. And you know what, you guys, I really, I can't, I can't fully let myself go there. There's something in me that holds back. I can barely touch the thought and then I, I just can't go in on it. Gabrielle, how do you pastor families through that trauma? Look, I think that it's probably one of the hardest things you have to do because fear, fear, fear is a powerful emotion, right? It, so there's fear on every side. There's fear of people who are going to lose status and they could be pulled over and later deported. And there's fear of people living in the U.S. who don't know immigrants, who have no relationships. That's why as a pastor, mm-hmm. you have to replace fear. The antidote to fear, by the way, is not courage. It's not courage. Yeah. The antidote to fear is love. Mm. Scri- scripture says that perfect love casts away all fear. And so to those who are afraid of immigrants, you have to show how love is, is both vulnerable and risk-taking but rewarding. And to those who are living in the shadows of the fear of being devoted, you have to tell them, no, there's a faith community that no matter what government says, no matter what policy says, the faith community will be with you through this. And we're going to provide support and advocacy, and we're going to walk with you hand in hand. And if we have to march, and if we have to advocate, and if we have to visit the hill, that as the old civil rights uh, marchers would say, we ain't going to let nobody turn me around. Yeah. We're, gonna, we're going yeah. to keep going. The arc of the moral universe is long. And it bends towards justice. And I am, I'm a Christian, and so I transact in hope. At mm-hmm. the end of the day, I believe that if we keep at it, that we're, we're going to be relentless. We, evangelicals and Catholics and uh, people of goodwill, are going to keep fighting for you. But in the meantime, that you're going to find allies in our churches, and you're going to find allies in our pastors and our Sunday school teachers and communities of faith. And that's how we pastor them, to very difficult times, that you're not alone, that there's a solidarity of people who empathize and want to amplify your voice. And mm-hmm. let me just say this. The truth is that the dreamers are leading this movement. Like, mm-hmm. you know, our faith leaders, we come out, we sign, and we visit the hill, but we're following. We're yeah. following. The leaders are the Josephs and the Esters of our generation. They're the leaders, and they, frankly, they inspired me to courage. Sometimes mm-hmm. I'm trying to pastor them, but they're pastoring me, because they're, mm-hmm. they're risking it all, and they're going out there, and they're marching, and they're saying, even if I get deported, even I'm going to not let them play dreamers against family unification. And so the truth is that pastoring them is not as hard as I thought, because they have incredible, incredible resiliency and courage, and they know that in the end, we're not going to give up till, till we turn the tide on this. Thank you so much, Gabriel. Um, Jenny, what can we do? I mean, Gabe, Gabe talked about the necessity for us to be there, really to exercise the ministry of presence. That's what, that's what I call it, or ministry of solidarity, just simply mm-hmm. being present. Gabe, maybe it's it's the love that we that is the antidote to fear has to come with the equal level of persistence. Mm-hmm. So what does that love look like? What can that love look like, Jenny? 
I mean, Gabe said exactly right when I feel like, you know, the healing, the restoration and reconciliation, it has to come out of community. It has to come out of of being there. And even if you don't have the right answers or know what's going on, just, you know, yesterday, Liz Dong, who's one of the co-founders of Voices of Christian Dreamers, she actually works for World Belief and she mm-hmm. is undocumented and she's an, a DACA recipient was sending out a tweet saying, you know, if tonight's a really hard night for all of us, if you know a dreamer, reach out to them and let them know that you're there. Mm-hmm. And if you don't, just hug a loved one because that's really all we can do at this point. And so this this ministry of presence, I think, is, is so powerful and it communicates the fact that dreamers and others that are the most impacted are, are actually not alone in the struggle. And so I think right now, I think reaching out to these individuals you know who are personally impacted, I think is key to let them know that we're, we're not forgetting this, that we're going to persist despite everything else. But also, I think, I mean, tangible ministries or churches that are doing real good work on the on the field, on the ground, helping DACA recipients, either with their paperwork or with, you know, legal advice. These are all places where you can either volunteer. And I think ultimately, and perhaps the most difficult part is raising your voice and contacting your elected officials and letting them know that we haven't forgotten that this is not something that's just going to go away mm-hmm. by them kicking the can down the road. And so Matthew 25 is a great campaign that was started by various organizations where we're expressing solidarity with immigrants and and in different ways living out Matthew 25, which is Jesus's words when he said, I was a stranger and you welcomed me. So that's just something to look into. Mm-hmm. We also started something called the Power to Act. If you go to powertoact.org, you just punch in your contact information and there's a call generated on your phone. So you don't have to find your member of Congress and it automatically connects you to senators and your one representative. And you can actually call your member of Congress and just continue to ask them to support a legislative fix for dreamers. So there's a lot, wow. I think, that folks can do. Um, I think advocacy is probably the highest bar because it's sometimes the most difficult to do. But I think just being present with our immigrant neighbors and, you know, just continuing to to talk about this, even within the church, I think is important as well. You know, if your church hasn't talked about immigration, ask your pastor to preach about it and Mm. use his pulpit to talk about this from a theological point of view. I think we have to have this be not just a political conversation, but a social conversation that's happening within our faith communities. So those are a few things I think people can do. That's awesome. And then when we talk about the policies, what you actually mentioned earlier that there might be a hint of possible way that DACA could be passed or some kind of immigration, good immigration legislation could be passed before March 5th. How could that be? And Phil, you could also fill in here as well. Well, I think there's kind of a falling of the chips in terms of where we know senators are in terms of their positions because Mm -hmm. of the failure of these four votes that happened. So next week is President's Day. There's a recess. I think that week afterwards, which is pretty much right before the March 5th deadline, there is a small window of opportunity where I know some offices are considering asking McConnell for maybe just one last vote on the Senate side. And so it's still to be determined whether or not McConnell's going to have that vote. And so that's something that we're pursuing. But the DACA decision, and Phil can fill in here too, is um, it's been held up in the courts, which means that there was a ruling by the courts that said that the rescinding of DACA can't happen by March 5th, or there's it's still going through legal proceedings. And ah. so um, it doesn't mean that that's going to be the final decision. And obviously with with DREAMers, some of them, even with DACA, have their work permits expiring and things like that. But the pressure is still there with Congress to pass something because that's going to be the only permanent fix to what DREAMers are going through right now. I see. And I think, I mean, 
like Jenny said, we're, we're certainly organizing to try to get something before March 5th. But the fact of the matter is, even if we don't hit that deadline, we're not going to stop. Uh, there's another window toward the end of March, which both houses of Congress are going to have to pass a budget to keep the government open. So that's another one of these windows where we think – Particularly given the failure of the votes and given the overwhelming failure of the president's own plan, mm. we're hoping that allows a space for this compromise, for these moderate members from both parties to come together and actually get something going. I think for us, we're not going to stop fighting until dreamers are protected. And I think that, you know, for, for dreamers out there, for people listening, we have your back. We are fighting for you and we're not going to stop until you're protected. Amen. And, you know, this makes me think of the fact that we are in the season of Lent. And so all of March is actually, we have, we're, it's interesting, really kind of a lot of parallels here. March 5th is that deadline date we've been looking toward, but now you tell us that there's actually another possible window towards the end of March. Well, that March is basically that last part of Lent. It's the last, the last 30 days of, of Lent. And so, Gabriel, it hasn't escaped me that all of this is going on in the middle of this season where the church calendar reflects those last days of Jesus on earth when he set his face toward Jerusalem and began to trek there to the day that he hung on the cross. And so, you know, he was he was moving from the outside to the center of power over these days. Like he was he was moving toward the center of colonial power, the center of imperialism, the center of the occupiers of his land. And in Jerusalem confronted them all, really, literally confronted them all. So how do you how do we think about the struggle, these last 30 days of Lent? How do we engage them in light of immigration and, and the current struggle to pass um, good reform? I think that we begin with that famous phrase often, Ash Wednesday begins the beginning of Lent. And for those who practice that tradition, they receive ashes either on the forehead or on mm-hmm. their arm. And it says to them, remember that, that you are dust and to the, the dust you shall return ashes to ashes. But what it's really telling us, is that we're all connected, mm-hmm. what Dr. King called the interconnected web of mutuality, that we live in one world house, uh, and, and that there's a beloved community. And so our action, or my action as an evangelical pastor, as, a, as, as the president of the National Latino Evangelical Coalition, as a father, it comes from the platform of our shared humanity. One of the texts that's often read during Lent is mm-hmm. John 3.16, for God so loved the world. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's not for God so loved just my ethnic background or my country, for God so loved the world. And it's that love for humanity that moved Jesus to risk, you know, to kind of shatter that religio-political cocktail that didn't address occupation in first century Jerusalem and Palestine, that that didn't address, you know, uh, the the marginalization of, of entire... Love inspires you to walk with and among the vulnerable, it's what inspired the prophets, it's what inspired mm-hmm. Esther. It's what should inspire every faith community. This is podcast, this freedom is gathering activists and faith leaders and, and people who know about policy. And what really puts us, what binds us together? Mm-hmm. That, it's that Lenten passage that we're all connected, that we're all in one world house, and that should inspire us to works of justice and works of of mercy and to confront the powers that try to separate us or 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 uh, categorize us around around race and and gender and class. For God so loved the world is the message of Lent, and that should reflect on how people of faith 
advocate for policy to bring people together. Thank you so much, Gabrielle. You know, I'm struck. I'm remembering, actually, I was in Australia recently. I'm actually wearing a necklace that was given to me there by an Aboriginal woman. You know, she gave this to me as a gift and then told me the story of the Aboriginal people, the First Nations of of Australia. They have such a similar story to us. They are a land where they, the very First Nations were removed and people came uh, from colonizing nation and took the land and claimed it as their own. They, It's very nativist now. And, and in Australia, they actually have an issue about offshore refugee uh, processing at this island called Manus. This is not just America that is going through this struggle, this war for who are we. It's really a global struggle right now. It's a global struggle for the birthing of, of the beloved community. And I'm reminded of the work of my friend Jared McKenna uh, and Love Makes a Way. You know, uh, Gabrielle, you were talking about love and the force of love and the call to love during Lent. And the reality is, is that love makes a way. So let's just leave with that. The conversations leaders have on the road to justice. This is the Freedom Road Podcast. Thanks for hanging out with us today. We'd love to hear your thoughts. Drop us a line at podcast at freedomroad.us or tweet to us at freedomroadus. The Freedom Road podcast is recorded at the studios of the Center for American Progress in Washington, D.C., and this episode was engineered and edited by David Dalt. Freedom Road podcast is produced by Freedom Road, LLC. We consult, coach, train, design experiences that help groups to do justice in just ways. You can find out more about our work on our website, freedomroad.us. We invite you to listen again next month. Until then, join the conversation on Freedom Road.